Right, good morning everyone. Sorry I have us started a few minutes late here. Let's, uh, let's open with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, we are in First Kings, and we're some ways into chapter 12, if memory serves. Of course, correct me if you can, if, if I'm wrong. Uh, starting at 1216, I think, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, by way of preface, I would probably say, get ready to be depressed. <laughs> As we've seen, as we see, we go we go through these uh, phases in the Bible where it's very exciting, exhilarating, um, and then on the on the other hand, very depressing. We're going to see um, a rending in two, a rending in two of the nation, uh, largely on account of Solomon's unfaithfulness and uh, and widespread idolatry. Which is, a, which is a widespread and, and corporate, you know, it involves the entire country, all 12 tribes, a corporate ignoring of the covenant of God. And so uh, the nation is it's kind of a co- covenantal imagery. If you remember, like even the covenant with, uh, with Abraham and the, the passing between the, the two things, um, it's, it's very similar here where... Um, if you violate the covenant, this is what happens. You're torn in two. Well, here is the tearing in two of Israel. We're going to see this in terms of its po- political leaders, its politics, what we would refer to as the left-hand kingdom, and then what we would refer to as the right-hand kingdom, also the prophets and what they're doing. We're going to see um, disagreements, confusion, things wrong, disordered, much like we did in Judges. So, unfortunately, we're kind of descending into this valley. Of course, Rehoboam takes over. Um, interestingly, interestingly, God has promised Jeroboam that the kingdom will be his. Uh, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, uh, is in line to take it. And in fact, Jeroboam even submits to him and says, you know, the, the kingdom is going to be yours. But look, you, you, you all have been forcing us into, into labor and how you know Solomon, your father's been doing this, and so what? What's your policy going to be? Can you can you remove this from us? Um, can you uh, you know can you lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And of course, what does Rehoboam do? Rehoboam goes to the old men, and they say, "Yes, lighten it, unite the kingdom." And the young men say, "No way, make it heavier." And he follows their advice very foolishly, and thus splits the kingdom. Remember this line, my father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. <laughs> yeah, well. Okay, so this is, uh, yeah, this is a problem. Verse 16, and when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David. So this is the rejection of Rehoboam because you have David, Solomon, Rehoboam. So what portion do we have in David? 
Very sad. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. I mean, kind of just again like this, what do we have to do with you type of uh, thing going on here. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. <laughs> so you're going to increase, you're going to increase... Uh, I mean, the people finally have enough. That, this is kind of the interesting thing about tyranny, is eventually, eventually, the people have enough and they take things into their own hands. And that's what's done here. So you're going to whip us with scorpions? Okay. Um, we're going we're to kill your whip master. All right, and King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And so that's at the time of this writing. Um, let me give you exact dates here. I can't recall off the top of my head. But this, is, um, this book is always written later than I... First and Second Kings are always written later than I often remember. Oh, crying out loud. Too many paper thin. It's not paper thin. It's even thinner than paper thin. What's the, uh, what's the dating of this writing? It's divided in 931, and this is written in 560 B.C. So, you know, un just under, uh, under 400 years, about 370 years or so, it looks like, um, later. Okay, so the kingdom's still divided to this point. Um, that's, that's what's being said here. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. That's verse 19, verse 20. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. And of course, Benjamin's absorbed in the tribe of Judah, so here you really have the north and the south. Um, and the north being led by Jeroboam, the south... Uh, very distinct minority, but important minority because of it holding Jerusalem. Um, but now you have Jeroboam and Rehoboam um, and a divided kingdom. Verse 21 of chapter 12. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, to fight against the house of Israel, to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. Okay, so the question is, why does he not listen one time and then listens in this case? Yeah, I, 
I mean, here, here it's obviously the word of the Lord comes to Shemaiah. Shemaiah uh, brings this to the king. The king and the people listen. Um, who knows? Who knows? And it may be the circumstances that, uh, that change their minds as much as the word of the Lord. All right, um, into 25, then Jeroboam, remember this is up in the north, built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. Um, and he went out from there and built Penuel. Verse 26, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me in return to Rehoboam, uh, king of Judah. So what's he afraid of? He's afraid of the people's piety to Yahweh, because, um, and, and so thus they would go to Jerusalem for the, for the great feasts. And upon going there, you know, nostalgia would take over. They would see the kingdom. They would remember what was of old, and uh, they'd, they'd be led away. And so, you know, Jeroboam doesn't want this. Verse 28, so the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Oh, <laughs> oh gosh, just terrible, just terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, maybe it's me, but why, if he's afraid of it, why didn't he just build another duplicate of the temple? Duplicate of the temple to, to yeah. Yahweh? Yeah, I don't, I, mean, I don't know. I suspect that I suspect that there are all kinds of uh, external pressures and then internal pressures towards this worship of the golden calf. The golden calf very frequently um, is synonymous with Baal, and so, gosh, I think we I, we lack any direct parallels to this. But but I think it was it was more attractive, you know, leave leave Yahweh down there. This Baal thing is what everyone's really after. So he's playing into this popular ethos and this popular movement to really increase uh, the kind of Baal worship, it, it usually formulated in the golden calves. I mean, it is interesting here, he says, he says gods. What also might be represented here then is a plurality and an openness to plurality, uh, which is going to fit the descendants of Solomon and his wives and all their influence of like, hey, it's obviously not Yahweh who brought us out of Egypt. It's these gods. Um, therefore, we can uh, open ourselves to this kind of pluralism, worshiping all kinds of different gods and just allowing that to be the case. Yeah, two, two calves. Uh, the study note on this says a, a small bronze bull figure about uh, seven inches long was found in the northern Sumerian hills. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily mean that these are the calves, uh, that, that's, that that's one of the two calves. Um, but it does, it does show um, how widespread, and that kind of factors into this theory that I just presented to you of um, there was a lot of popular push for this. Behold your God, cessation of the northern tribes severed religious as well as 
uh, political ties. Jeroboam cleverly connected the theme of freedom from Egyptian slavery. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. And here's really the appeal to the freedom from the forced labor under Rehoboam. So there's the, you can see how twisted that is. I mean, it's very twisted. But of course, if you're, if you're the average northern Israelite and you're already kind of twisted into this false worship and plurality, this is going to be attractive to you. Hey, great, we're wedding all the stories together. We're, we're very inclusive. And here's Luther's comment. So great is the perversity of the human heart that, accept, that it accepts strange gods far more readily and eagerly then it maintains that this God, who has revealed himself through his promises and signs, is truthful. How great a kindness it is that he has redeemed us through his Son. All right. So, so interesting language coming up. Interesting language coming up. Um, he concocts this plan. He's got the two calves. Everybody's going to worship him. No need to go down to Jerusalem. No temptation to go back to Rehoboam and the house of David. They'll all be his. Um, that's, the, that's the plan here. So you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the, people, for the people went as far as Dan uh, to be before one. And this is, um, yeah, so, so this became a sin. You can see the sense in which like a, sn a snare, a scandal on a downfall, a reason for apostasy, not just like, hey, it was okay for a while, but then it became a sin. <laughs> is that the sense? Um, the sense is like this became an apostasy, a turning away. So that's, um, that's the sense there of this became a sin for the people and as far as Dan uh, to be before one. He also made temples on high places. I mean, this is very convenient. You've got to take all this. You can see how pragmatism and false religion go hand in hand because, you know, they don't, you don't have to travel. You don't have to take off weeks or months or whatever it was. We've got it all over the place here. He made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not the Levites. All right, so you have a new worship, new priesthood, all of this being created. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made, and he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. Uh, so clearly what's going on here is some idolatry uh, in, in this sense, that Jeroboam is ultimately worshipping himself and wanting the people to worship him. And thus, all this other religion is just a way for that to be the case. He's instituting whatever feasts he wants to have. Um, he's forming the temples and the priesthood. He's doing it all. He's, he is the small g God here. Again, a very tragic and sad fall. Not that we get that much information on Jeroboam, but God does, God does pick Jeroboam and, um, and state outright that Jeroboam's going to be the guy. 
And you do see some humility and willingness to bring the kingdom together on the part of Jeroboam in the earliest part of chapter 12. And now, I mean, what are you going to say here at the end of chapter 12, except he's gone completely off the rails. And Again, not that we had a thorough character sketch, but from what little data we have, it does not look good. Okay, so he has devised this, this high feast day from his own heart. Uh, and he, this just finishing out, what is it, verse uh, 33, looks like. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Okay, into verse 13, or, or excuse me, chapter 13, unless you have uh, questions or comments or anything to add. Um, like I said, it's not exactly, I mean, it's very depressing stuff. <laughs> I don't know if the internet needs to benefit from that, but I did. That was a funny comment. Yeah, well, you see, yeah, you see a bit of egotism here. And you see a kind of pandering to the people and a kind of pragmatism. I mean, Yahweh's so stuffy. He's so exclusive. He wants to be worshipped alone, and he wants it just in his temple. And you've got to go all that way. And he's set the feast. Uh, let me make this easier for you all. Here are your gods. Here, here, all the high places, here's a new priesthood. And then guess what's involved in all of this, too? I mean, complete gratification of your sinful desires, because this is the fertility cult stuff, and this is the temple prostitution, and we can be just like our neighbors, just like everyone else, and, you know, kind of this one-world pluralism in ancient form. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's very brutal. It's very brutally pragmatic what Jeroboam does, and does so that the people will ultimately be under his thumb. All right, chapter 13. And behold, a man of God. Again, this is just the language for the prophets. We saw that with Shemaiah just, just a moment ago. Some of these men of God that we encounter are, um, we don't even find their name. And uh, I think that that's, uh, that's the case at a couple of different points throughout Kings. A man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you and human bones shall be burned on you. Well, that's a little ominous. Yeah. Um, if you look at down at the study note on verse 2, uh, this recognition, O altar, altar, uh, signifies um, pity. Now, this prophecy of Josiah, this was fulfilled 300 years later. We'll get there when we get to 2 Kings, God willing. 2 Kings chapter 23, we'll see Josiah come. And so this was already a matter of record when uh, 1 and 2 Kings were written. Of course, um, yeah, and then pointed out here, the, the sort of irony, I mean, these pagan gods, for example, Moloch, involved child sacrifice. And so... 
now instead of child sacrifice, it's the sacrificers, sacrificers being sacrificed, and it's the priests being sacrificed, the pagan priests being sacrificed on the own pagan altars. So there's kind of a brutality here, but at the same time, a poetic justice um, that's being stated. I don't know. Is it terrible for me to be so sick of the milk toast injustice of our age that this is somewhat attractive to me? <laughs> <laughs> that there would be definitive justice and something actually done and actually in keeping with justice so that everyone could see and know. I don't know. I find myself, right or wrong, I find myself slightly pining over this. Kind of wishing we had a Josiah. Um, but, but I suppose that's ultimately fulfilled in our Lord's return. <laughs> when the true Josiah returns and repays the evil with evil and the good with good. Okay, um, so this is the prophecy, verse 3. And he gave a sign the same day. I mean, because anybody can say anything. If you have a sign accompanying it, that obvious, especially if it's something only God could do, that certainly factors as a proof. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. <coughs> so, uh, yeah, that's, a, that's quite the sign. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, not the Lord our God, the Lord your God, I don't mean to abuse that phrase. It's not quite that specific, probably. But he says, And pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. Isn't that something? I mean, there's, that's the mercy of God. It's incredible mercy. It's almost offensive mercy. And if you were that prophet and he's like, hey, give me my hand back. You mean the hand you just said seize him with and pointed at me to kill me? Now you want it back? Ah, oh, yeah, I'll be sure and pray for that. <laughs> I mean, but this, so this is remarkable mercy on the part of the man of God. He sees himself truly humbly as just a messenger and uh, as one who speaks on behalf of God and yet also appeals to God on behalf of the wicked. Even one who just, I mean, here's a very Christ-like figure. And so he prays for the man who is just going to point his finger to have him jailed, executed, tortured, who knows. And he prays for this man. And then, and then God, in his infinite grace and mercy, kind of offensive grace and mercy, very often, um, gives him back his hand. His hand was restored to him and became as it was before. Verse 7, And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. Huh. Danger. Danger, danger. Yeah. Um, this says, this, yeah, and the study note points out just that. Gift that may have served as a bribe. 
Realizing the man was undeniably a true prophet, Jeroboam hoped to deal with him through kindness rather than force. Yeah. Verse 8. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so was it commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water, nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. All right, so he's faithful. I mean, God made this provision. We don't know all of the details, but um, certainly the sense is, is the, Lord, the Lord precludes him through these commandments of being bribed and being kind of like brought into. Um, so yeah, so far so good for this prophet. He's avoided the danger. He's executed his, uh, his prophetic task. He's, been, he's shown the mercy of God and praying for the, for the king, for Jeroboam to be healed, and that healing takes place. So far, so good. Should we stop there for the day? <laughs> yeah. This mysterious figure uh, seems a little bit like Melchizedek. Huh? Yeah, maybe not as, maybe, well, because Melchizedek kind of has this proper name or at least proper title, and there's kind of this, this aura about Melchizedek. Um, anonymous men of God, as these prophets of God, uh, kind of come and go. It also gives you a flavor for, for what's, I think, what's, what's certainly the case. And, and maybe here isn't where I'd point to for my proof text, obviously. It would just be an example. Um, what we have, the prophets and the prophetic messages we have recorded in the scriptures are just a portion of the prophetic activity and the prophetic pronouncements that were going on throughout the Old Testament period. So... I mean, in the same way that in the New Testament, we have some of the sermons of the apostles recorded for us, but not all of them. And, uh, and none of the, many of the other preachers out there proclaiming the gospel and that kind of thing. So um, we have what the Holy Spirit wanted to retain for us, for our good. And, and you just, it's glimpses like this where the Bible indicates that there's, there's obviously more going on that it's not telling you. Me too. Yeah, the wise men, the same thing with the angel in their dream. Yeah. So yeah. God is caring and watching over his, his people, and uh, it's very comforting. Yeah, and don't you love that with just a little phrase? The Lord can remind us in his wisdom and take us back there. And even if we don't find much more of a connection or brilliant connection to make than, than just the phrase, nonetheless, it's a, it's a neat way that the Holy Spirit reminds us. And yeah, yeah, very true. So, so the Magi who had to deal with Herod and this prophet who had to deal with uh, the wicked Jeroboam, they're both, they're both told to go home another way. All right, well, on reluctantly to verse 11 and following. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel. And remember, this is one of the major seats of idolatry. And his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told to their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? And his sons showed him the way that the man of God, who came from Judah, had gone. 
And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God, and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. And he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go in with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. What this reminds me of, now I don't, I don't know and I haven't done any research, but I wonder, I wonder if Paul doesn't at least in part have this in mind when in Galatians he says, even if an angel from heaven should come and tell you, let him be accursed. You know, because here, here's that's the, exactly the claim is, hey, an angel came and told me something contrary to what the Lord had told him, right? Oh, yeah, Mar- Maroni. Yeah. 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 No, I don't know. This is, uh, this is just all fabricated. This, this old prophet of Bethel um, completely fra- fabricates this story. And so now, now, but what do you see in terms of the narrative? You see the corruption of the, of, uh, the government, the, what we would call the civil government and the corruption of the, uh, of the prophetic office. You just, you see what we would call corruption in the both kingdoms. I understand the Hebrew people probably don't formulate it in their minds quite like that. Um, more of a theocratic type of state, obviously, with the, well, with the king at the altar. Um, well, it's not, it's not um, le- yeah, is he a, is he a uh, Levitical, um, or is he, a, I mean, it, well, that would be a Levitical priest, which there's no indication of. Is he a, it just says prophet of Bethel, so, I don't know, I don't know. Remember there's, um, well, I don't know. To tell you the truth, I have more questions there than answers in terms of how the prophetic class works and how the sons of the prophets work. Remember how you get all of that, the sense that the, there's, there's this class of prophets um, with Saul. Remember that really bizarre thing where he like strips naked and all of that? Yeah. So I don't, I have more questions than answers to tell you the truth when it comes to um, the structuring of the, or, or their self-understanding of the prophetic office at that time. All the information that we're given is there's this prophet from Judah. He comes up, executes his duty faithfully with um, Jeroboam. Part of his, the duty that God has given to him is not to eat or drink there when he's up in the northern kingdom, you know, with these people. And um, then this old prophet from Bethel comes and deceives him. That's all we know. Um, now, what should, what should this anonymous prophet from Judah say? He should say what St. Paul says. I don't care if an angel from heaven told me, the word of the Lord told me, and I'm sticking to that. Okay? But instead, he, he allows himself to be deceived, albeit by I mean, this difficult deception, because he doesn't want to... I look forward to I look forward to he- getting to that episode. 
having that refreshed in my mind sounds legit. Um, yeah, so okay, well, what's going to happen? He lies to him, verse 19, so he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. No! You know what, again, what's going on in the narrative here? The, the faithful, even the faithful are corrupted. If they can withstand the king, they're corrupted by the prophets. If they can withstand the prophets, they're corrupted by the king. I mean, I think that that's, what's, I think that that's narratively here what's going on is even a faithful guy gets wound up in the lies, disobeys the Lord. Um, again, it's his own fault. Uh, there's culpability to be sure. Uh, but that's, that's the way things are going. That, thus my read and my warning ahead of today's class that it, it is depressing. All right, verse 20. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came... Wait, who cried to the man of God? It's the prophet that told the lie. Yeah, yeah. and he cried to the man of God... Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, uh, yeah, the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey of the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside it. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road, and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. Okay, so... I mean, how bizarre is this? So the prophet who, you know, the old prophet who deceived the young prophet. Let's say he's young. I don't know if he's young. The, the prophet from Bethel deceived the prophet from Judah and gets him to eat. And then in the middle of the eating, the word of the Lord comes to this lying prophet and speaks through him the truth to the prophet who would believe the lie instead of the Lord. I mean, I guess if the Lord can speak through the mouth of a donkey, he can speak through the mouth of a false prophet, and here he does. That's just weird, isn't it? It's just weird. So he announces the doom, I mean, the very, so weird. The very one who deceives his lips, through those lips, the Lord announces his doom for believing the lie. Right, yeah, he incurred the judgment of God. So the option was listen to God or listen to man and angel. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, again, you can see, if, you can see how, if nothing else, this certainly lends huge weight and even more impact to Paul's statement about the gospel. And um, that if anyone teaches a, you a, a, a gospel contrary to this one, let him be anathema, even if it's an angel from heaven. And so, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, the, I, somebody brought up Moroni, but it's like, you know, in Mormonism, and I don't mean to always pick on Mormonism, but, you know, in Mormonism, this angel comes and gives this additional revelation. And it's, it's, all, it's all lies and deceit. We stick with the Word of God. We don't go over to that, lest we incur not a temporal punishment, but a, an eternal punishment. Now, isn't also this prophet is going to be 
held accountable for this man's death because he was he deceived him. He knew it, and God even reveals it to him, and it's going to be held accountable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well, I mean, yeah. You'll, you'll see what happens. It's equally I, to me. It's equally weird. And, I mean, kind of also unsatisfying. It's just weird. It's just weird. I don't know what else to say from our, from our perspective. And it's, it's weird in kind of a perverse sort of way. And I think that that, I, I actually think that that's the point. When, when you leave the covenant of God, things get weird. And they get perverse. And, uh, and you can't tell who's good anymore. And who's right anymore. Until somebody comes like Josiah and it's just like, obvious, but even then they have to overcome the, their own baggage and the baggage of their time. But Okay, yes? What can tell, what can tell the priest, the old prophet, to tell his son, get the donkey out, go right away? It seems to, yeah, what compelled it seems to be the narrative that he withstood the, ki- withstood the king and conducted these miracles, you know, the withering of the hand and the return of the hand. I mean, we're not, we're not given like exactly the psychology going on in this, this old priest from Bethel, but something about that story, something about that prophet causes him to want that prophet to come into his house. You know, maybe it was like, hey, show me how you did that. Well, Could be. I don't know. I don't know. We're not get, I. We're not given enough information there to really understand what the psychology de- desires or demands of the old prophet, you know, was. I would just assume, the w- you know, the way that the text presents it, his sons came and told him all that the man ha- of God had done that day in Bethel. That's what intrigues him. That's what causes him to get on his donkey and go right after this guy. And Well, let's, let's get to a... Let's, um, get to how this situation resolves, even though it's, uh, it's very strange. Okay, so he says this, and then verse 23, after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion. So yeah, this is the, you know, the otherwise faithful prophet, unfaithful in this, then a lion comes and kills him. Now this is a, this is a sign. Obviously this is weird because... A lion's not going to kill the man and then just stand there, nor is the donkey just going to stand there. So this creates such a weird scene that it draws the attention of people and it becomes in and of itself a kind of sign. Um, Yeah, this thing with theological import. Yeah, his body was thrown in the road, the donkey stood beside it, the lion also stood beside the body. What a weird image. Yeah. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the prophet lived, the old prophet lived. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the (laughs) word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. I don't know why I picture this guy as fat and unlikable, but I just do. <laughs> and he went and found his body thrown in the road and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. I mean, that's just bizarre. 
and the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave and they mourned over him saying, Alas, my brother. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. <laughs> like, is there any type of Christ here? I, I, it is so far above my skill and ability. This would be the closest I can come to it, is that, um, like Paul says, in baptism, we're buried with Christ, you know. But boy, do you have to like see through all the garbage of these two characters. You know, well, I don't mean the gar, I just mean the failing, especially the gar. I don't know, I don't like the fat old priest from Bethel, if you can tell. So that's my bias. <laughs> got to get over that. But you've got these two guys, they both sinned grievously. Um, and now they're going to be joined together in, in death in this way. It's really weird. Um, it's really strange to make heads or tails of this. Other than this just ominous, terrible, depressing signs. I suppose like when I get a little more eccentric and old, I'll have somebody paint me a silhouette of, uh, of a lion standing next to a donkey with a dead man in the middle and above it I'll put 2021 or something. <laughs> like, like this is the kind of just strange dark imagery that you cannot put your finger on exactly what it is, but you know it's bad. <laughs> okay. Yeah. When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. I mean, rip that out of context and it's like, bury me with Christ that I might rise with him. And maybe that would be like the typological um, import of this. But again, it's, it is challenging. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. I mean, does this, does this old prophet from Bethel, in a sense, come to faith on account of this uh, prophet of Judah dying in this way? I mean, even then, it's quite different than Christ because Christ sin is sinless and obeys his Father perfectly and this prophet from Judah isn't, this man of God isn't. Maybe I should, I should, plan, for, I should pl plan right now to preach on this text next Lent <laughs> so that I have to work this out, so that I have to figure this out. I've got one year. Um, yeah, this is, uh, I mean, this is very, very challenging stuff. Just in terms of like what it, okay, what, it, what does it mean? You know, what is the point? And if, and if the Old Testament's about Christ, where do we see him here? Um, very, very challenging. Very, very fun to think along these lines, but not comfortable. Pastor, yeah. He doesn't call him a man of God until he dies. Is that right? He doesn't call him a man of God until he dies. That, 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 okay, well, I'll, have to, I'll take your word on that. I, 
I agree a hundred percent that in verse 31, that man of God is, uh, that phrase is, is honorific. And he's basically saying, I want his fate to be my fate. I mean, here's a good guy that I deceived. He was a good guy. He, he died for his sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gets weirder the more I think about it. Because, because you also have this other thing that's been going on in the background of the text, which is just absolutely bizarre. And I was kind of sharing with the earlier class, like, just one of the ways that the text grapples with you and wrestles with you. Um, so here's, so here's uh, Jeroboam, who is instituting widespread idolatry. Where's his consequence? Here's this prophet that does everything right, is deceived by a fellow prophet who says an angel, this just in from a messenger of God, it's okay to eat and hang out with me. And how does he go down? Instantly by a lion tearing him open. I mean, that's like, that's difficult, isn't it? That's, it's thought-provoking, isn't it? And I... Uh, and you can kind of see, you can kind of see like this judgment begins with the house of the Lord motif, like he's stricter with those who are his, more lenient with those who aren't. The, the stricter judgment comes first, but in the end it's lighter than the judgment that delayed but becomes so definitive in the case of Jeroboam or those who are damned ultimately. But it's ponderous, it's ponderous. There are these sections of scripture that are just so challenging I don't know what you can do, but just sit and ponder and think on it. And unfortunately, in this case, it's not very comfortable to, because you've got the downfall of the nation, the, divide, the dividing of the nation, the, um, the, the, the king and the prophets in wickedness. If there's any redeeming factor at all, it's this old prophet who lied now and deceived and caused the death of this prophet, this man of God of Judah. Is that a type and foreshadow of the Pharisees, of the Jewish people that um, lie and deceive in regard to Christ? Now, it's different that Christ doesn't fall for the lie or go into any sin or unfaithfulness whatsoever. But they lie and deceive, and, and that results in his death. And then in, only in his death do they realize who he is and wish to be united with him. I mean, that might be the type. If I had to preach it today, that <laughs> would be the type. But, yeah, it's really challenging. Okay, so, so this, um, this prophet is, you know, whatever, he, whatever this uh, prophet of Judah said is going to happen, this prophet of Bethel, he confirms it, says, yeah, this is definitely going to happen. Verse 33, after this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests... I mean, could you imagine you watch your hand turn into a stick or whatever happened to him, you know, leprous or whatever it is. You watch it be given back to you and you think to yourself, let's get back to the idolatry. (laughs) I mean, yeah, but that's, yeah, that's what happens. So quite the testimony to the sinful nature within us. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would 
excuse me, any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. Yeah, and there you start to get the flavor of like the, uh, the mercenary priest, the, the guy who will do it for the, you know, do whatever for the, for the money. That was rampant in the time of the judges and so lamentable. And this thing became sin. I mean, again, in English, that sounds like, like it wasn't sin before, and now it suddenly became sin. Now, again, here, sin is like the scandal on the entrapment, the apostasy. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. And that's kind of what I was getting at. Like, like, judge, like that theme and idea of judgment beginning with the house of the Lord, it's like, it's really... It's really punitive and there's no delay and it happens, but it's a temporal punishment. Um, whereas for the wicked, it's like, it's like this long, slow, the wheels of justice, uh, what was it, turn exceedingly, no, turn slowly but grind exceedingly fine. I mean, that's kind of the thing, like what... Like God is so, su- he's not patient with his own. He's super, he's super abundantly patient with the wicked, but his impatience with those who are his own, he chastises quickly and it's over. Um, with those he's long suffering with, when they finally reject him, um, well, in the language here, his family is cut off and destroyed from the face of the earth. So when justice finally does come, it's substantial. All right, um, I'm, I'm scared to ask if there's any thoughts or questions, because <laughs> who knows where we'll go. Says, when justice comes, it's substantial, just like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the end, the real end. Right. It's substantial. Right. Yeah, yeah, I know. You, yeah. yeah, you kind of have like a, like a believer who sins in, um, in the prophet of Judah, Sins grievously. And you see, you see the swift justice and the sign that that is. And then you have kind of this unbeliever in Jeroboam and you see long suffering and no justice for a long, long time. And then, and then a justice that's even more harsh. Yeah, kind of. Kind of. I don't know. These, um, these sections, you think to yourself, First and Second Kings, these are just historical books. Let's go get the historical facts. And then you find yourself in this kind of thing, and you're like, whoa. There's so much to think on, so much to learn. Okay, chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself, that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah... Boy, we've got to be careful there. Abijah and Ahijah. Do I have that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ahijah is the prophet there who said of me that I should be king over this people. That takes us back a couple chapters prior. Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what shall happen to the child. Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah 
could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. And the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her. When she came, that's great writing, isn't it? When she came, she pretended to be another woman. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came in at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. That might have freaked her out. Yeah. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you. That's kind of saying a lot. Worse than Solomon at his worst, worse than Saul at his worst. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free, in Israel and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat, for the Lord has spoken it. Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. So only in this son who is sick, only will he die and actually go to the grave. All the others are going to die and be eaten by dogs and birds. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like because the little children suffer them to come unto me because he likes the little children, but the adults, they're accountable. Yeah, I don't, yeah, maybe so. For a minute, I thought you said I should do this as a children's sermon, and I thought, no, I don't think so. <laughs> All the children going home, Mom, can I do the dishes, please? Can I help? Yeah, so the, so the Lord sees the heart. Uh, he, ju he, ju he judges not by external appearances, but by the heart. It's very interesting. And even in this little child, the Lord sees something pleasing. Um, it, is, uh, it is a relative mercy, though, because the child, as, a, as offspring of Jeroboam, is going to die and uh, will, be, will, will be put into a grave. Um, and he alone, everybody else, all the other sons, bond and free, uh, will die in these um, violent, way, violent and, um, what would you say, like, 
I don't, I don't have the right word, disrespectful or something like that, kind of deaths where, you know, you're consumed by an animal, like not honored in death, not given a, a peaceful resting place, Jud- judgment upon judgment. Okay, verse 14, Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today, and henceforth the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their Asherim, these are their idols, remember, uh, provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. The covenant's been violated. So God is just holding true to the covenant, true to his word. And of course, he's foretelling of how the, the ten northern tribes will be swept up beyond the Euphrates and they will disappear. All of this about 722 uh, B.C., before Christ, and so, what would that be? About a, a, about two hundred and ten ish years from this time period. So, about two hundred years later, all of this would. Um, I should say. I should say this. This promise of God would be completely and entirely fulfilled. It's not to say that it isn't fulfilled in stages. It certainly is, um, but it would be entirely fulfilled in about two hundred and ten years. Okay, well, probably not what uh, Jeroboam's wife was looking for. <laughs> yeah, that, thus her disguise and all of that. Um, let's, uh, let's simply pick up with verse 17. If someone will help me remember that for next week. We're with verse 17 for next week. The Lord be with you. <laughs>